Philippians is an amazing letter. This is probably one of the, the, the letters of Paul in the New Testament that is most loved by Christians. Perhaps some of you have verses in this book memorized or that you go back to for encouragement over and over again, and for good reason. Paul is writing about the effects of the gospel in lives, and it's a, a letter that's filled with joy. It's bubbling, in a sense, with a happiness, a gladness, a sense of blessedness that is not dependent on any circumstances. This last week, my wife and I watched this movie called Hector and the Search for Happiness. I don't know if you've seen this. I didn't even hear about it until this past week. But in this, Simon Pegg plays a psychiatrist who is very happy with just the ordinary predictableness of his life. That is, until one day when he realizes that for all his wisdom and all the counsel that he gives as a psychiatrist, no one ever seems to be getting any better. No one's getting any happier. And this causes an existential crisis in his life. And so he tells his love interest that he needs to go on a search for happiness, reasoning that he can't help people be happy if he himself doesn't even know what happiness is. And so his travels take him all over the world. He, he goes to China first, and on his way over, he sits next to a rich businessman who asks him if he's flying for pleasure or for business. And he said, for research. I want to see what makes people happy. And the rich businessman just laughed and scoffed at such a, a ridiculous pursuit. He goes to China and spends time with Buddhist monk, monks. He goes to Africa and visits an old friend of his who's working with a nonprofit helping people with medical attention who, who can't afford it. He goes to Los Angeles and he catches up with an old love interest. And together they go to a, a lecture by a neurobiologist who is studying the science of happiness. And in this lecture, the scientist says, the more we focus on our own personal happiness, the more it eludes us. We should concern ourselves not so much with the pursuit of happiness as with the happiness of the pursuit. That sounds like something that modern Americans would say, right? It seems to be the counsel that we're given. Don't just worry so much about the pursuit of happiness as the happiness of the pursuit. And on the poster for this movie, it has a little tagline. Everyone wants to find it. That is, to find happiness. And in this kind of Ecclesiastes-type journey that Simon Pegg goes on, he's searching for this elusive element of happiness. And in doing so, he steps in line with what philosophers and theologians and poets have said through the centuries. For example, Blaise Pascal once said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Or the great theologian Thomas Aquinas, man is unable to wish to be happy. And if you go to the bookstore, you can find all kinds of different books, from The Happiness Hypothesis to The Happiness Project, The Happiness Advantage, The Art of Happiness, Happy is the New Healthy, and the more modestly titled 10% Happier. <laughs> I read an article this week on happiness, and the author said, if you want to be happy, just be happy now. If only it were sim so simple. <laughs> Why does happiness seem so elusive? Why do we want it? Why do we search for it? Why do we hope to discover it? My friends, as we launch the study today, I want to, to ask the question, what if happiness is not something that we drum up, that we muster up by sheer determination? What if happiness is not something that we achieve, but rather something that is received? And what if happiness does not come about by discovering who you are, 
but rather discovering whose you are. And what if this happiness is not dependent on changing circumstances, the good, the bad, or the ugly? That's what Paul is going to communicate to these followers of Jesus living in the ancient city of Philippi. And let me just say, he's not writing from an ivory tower position where everything is rosy. He is sitting in prison, and he's not sure if he's going to get out. He's facing possible execution for simply declaring that Jesus is Lord and calling people to follow him, preaching the gospel of Jesus. He finds himself in prison. And in this letter, as we'll discover as we work through it, Paul says, in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. The secret of being content. And he's going to tell us about it. And the good thing is he's not selling it. But for him, this secret of contentness, the secret of happiness, the secret of joy is not dependent on whether he's out of prison or in prison. It is a transcendent joy that rises above every situation. So we're going to call our study today Captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're just going to look at the, the first few introductory verses of this letter. And it sounds like a typical greeting if you, that you might read in any ancient letter. And if you read any of Paul's other letters, you will find that these greetings sound similar. But we're going to unpack it because there's actually a wealth of information here for us to, to dive into. So let's just pause for a moment and pray and ask the Lord to open our hearts and minds to receive the things he wants us to receive this day. Let's pray. Father, we live among a people who are constantly searching for happiness. Our lives are filled with all kinds of things that we attempt to buy and to do to secure this thing that seems so elusive. And as we get ready to dive into this letter that your servant Paul wrote from prison, who touches on this theme of joy over and over and over again, would you open up our ears to hear what you want to say to us in this study? Would you open our ears to hear? Would you open our hearts to believe? Would you open our eyes to see the joy that you offer to us in the person of Jesus Christ? Lord, some of us know that joy and we've tasted of it deeply. Others of us perhaps are here today. We've once tasted it, but we've we've lost it. We wonder if it was just an illusion or somehow we were deceived. And Lord, maybe others of us have, have no experience with what the Apostle Paul talks about this joy that rises above any circumstance. Open us, Lord, to receive the good things you have for us this day as we look at the introduction to this letter. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is what Paul says in the opening of this letter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's unpack this a little bit. He he introduces this letter by by referring to himself as Paul and Timothy. Now, Paul the Apostle, as you may be aware, was formerly a Pharisee. It was that group of people who conspired to put Jesus to death. He was one who persecuted the early church. He was entrusted, actually, with the responsibility of overseeing the first execution of a Christian. But he was suddenly converted when he saw the resurrected Jesus who had grace upon him and commissioned him in that moment to be his ambassador to the Roman Empire. And so he spoke before kings and and people in extreme poverty. And he actually wrote about half of the documents contained in our New Testament. 
Philippians being the one that we're going to dive into today. And so as I said, he's not writing some ivory tower theology of joy and happiness. He's writing having learned it in the depths of a prison, being under house arrest, facing a possible execution. And as he writes this letter to the Philippians, some 10 years after he helped start the church that resides in Philippi, he's writing to thank them because they had sent him a gift. It wasn't just simply a gift of ministry for ministry. It was, it was a gift for survival. In Roman prisons, you were oftentimes at the mercy of friends who would come and bring you food because the Romans didn't feed you unless you're someone prominent. And so he's thanking them for that letter, or I'm sorry, for the gift that they gave him by writing this letter. But he also wants to encourage them to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ in their personal lives and in their lives together with one another. And so he's, he's wanting to write them and to assure them that God is in control. He says to them later in chapter 1, what has happened to me, that is my imprisonment, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, I am here in prison, and I believe he's writing from prison in Rome, not near Philippi. He's writing from Rome to these Christians living in Philippi who are, who are getting nervous because it's starting to cost them something to follow Jesus. And he's writing to assure them that God is at work causing everything to work out for their good and for the advance of the gospel. And so he says to them, this is an amazing line, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard. The imperial guard are the ones who guard Caesar, the ones who guard the emperor. And they are there in Rome, and they are guarding this prisoner. He says, it has become known to everyone, basically surrounding Caesar, that I am here literally in chains for Christ. And so Paul introduces himself and Timothy. Timothy's his young disciple. We're going to learn more about him later on in the book of Philippians. Timothy himself is not in prison, but he's there ministering to Paul and is one of those people helping make sure that he gets his supplies met. But here he also introduces them as servants of Christ Jesus. Now if you've read some of the letters of Paul, you know oftentimes he refers to himself as an apostle right out the bat establishing his leadership among the churches of Jesus. But here, he simply calls himself and Timothy servants. But if we were to actually look at what that Greek word means, it's the, the Greek word for slaves. And so here's the question. Why would Paul use a word that could possibly trigger people by referring to himself as a slave of Christ Jesus? It was estimated that at the time of Paul's imprisonment in the first century, about 85 to 90 percent of the people living in the city of Rome were slaves. Now, the first thing we need to know is that slavery in that day was not the kind of slavery that you and I normally think of, race-based human trafficking that happened in our own nation. Rather, a person became a slave in one of three ways in ancient Rome. One, you were conquered in battle. Two, you were born into it. Three, which was the most common, you actually sold yourself into servitude to pay off debts. And you didn't have legal rights as a slave, but you had rights. You could own property, you could start businesses, you could buy your way out of slavery. And so Paul is referring to himself as a slave, not in any of those senses, but in a very specific, we might say, theological sense. You see, Paul was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who told us that we are by nature slaves to sin. Look at what Jesus said. This is in the Gospel of John. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Paul knew this intimately. He wasn't enslaved to kind of wild, scandalous sins, but rather he was, he was enslaved to the sin of, of building up his reputation, of building up his righteousness before God. And he will later tell us in this book, he considers all that now rubbish. In fact, the Greek word is excrement, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. But here he has experienced the freedom that comes when Jesus enters your life, forgives you of your sin, grants you eternal life, welcomes you into his future kingdom. This is what Paul is talking about when he calls himself a slave of Christ. He's experienced this freedom that Christ has given him and now has voluntarily given himself in response back to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul would later write this in the book of Romans. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get, that is the payment for this, leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Paul's mind, if you've been freed from sin, you experience grace. You experience a new freedom. And it's a freedom in which you might call yourself a slave of God or a slave of Jesus Christ. But as the old writer or songwriter said, you've got to serve somebody. And Paul says, I once served sin, but now I serve Jesus. He'll actually talk about Jesus becoming a slave. In chapter 2, we're going to see him say, Christ Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, becoming obedient to the point of death. And here in Philippians, he's going to tell us that Christ Jesus has made him his own. So let me just ask you this question. Friends, do you know the freedom and joy of offering yourself fully and completely to the one who loved you and gave himself for you to make you his very own? You know the freedom of giving yourself to Jesus who became a slave for you, who died on a Roman cross for you so that you might have life and salvation and freedom from your sin. Do you know the freedom and joy that comes from giving yourself fully and freely to the one who gave himself fully and freely to you? That's what Paul is talking about when he boasts of being a slave of Jesus Christ. Well, also in verse 1, he, he tells us that he's writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now, this is an interesting way for him to speak, isn't it? We might think that he would write to all the Christians. Or we might think that he would write to all the followers of Jesus in Philippi. But what he says is, I'm writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus. What I want you to know, my friends, is that the term saints is the New Testament word for ordinary Christians. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a saint. Now, I know you don't normally think of yourself as a saint. Someone might say, oh, I certainly don't feel like a saint. In my mind, a saint is some kind of super Christian, and I ain't that. But that word simply means holy ones. You might say, well, that doesn't help me either, because I don't feel very holy sometimes. What's holy in the sense of being set apart. And so, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a saint. And so I could refer to my friend Aaron as Saint Aaron. 
I knew, I knew we'd get some laughter with that, some Snickers, right? <laughs> or I might refer to my friend Jenny as St. Jenny. My friend Mike is St. Mike. That's kind of weird, isn't it? I don't know. I, I think I, I like the term Christian, but, but here's what we need to know. Christians didn't call each other Christians in the first century. That was a term of derision that people outside the church used of people who followed Jesus. They were the ones who followed after Christ. So they're Christians. But what the leaders of the church, what they said was, you are saints. And so Paul is writing to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus. What an interesting phrase. How are you in a person? To understand this language, we need to understand some of the broader teaching of the scriptures. For example, in 1 Corinthians, we are told that there are basically two great representatives or kings of the human race, and we're in one or the other of them. So Adam, the first representative king, was the first man. He's referred to as the first Adam. And we're told that in Adam we all die. He was our representative before the Lord. And he turned his back on God. And we all kind of followed in his wake. But Jesus is described as the second man, the last Adam. In Christ all shall be made alive, St. Paul tells us. And so to help us understand who we are in Adam are sinners. That's what we are by nature understanding ourselves in relation to that representative of the human race. But who we are in relationship to, to Jesus, we are saints. And so even though we might confess that we are sinners, the predominant, overwhelming majority of times the Christians are referred to by any label, it is simply by the term saints. To all the saints who are in Christ Jesus. That phrase, in Christ in him, in Jesus, is used some 60 times in the letters of Paul. It's really fascinating. Paul wants us to understand that we are in Christ. In fact, he'll write to the Corinthians these words. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. But what's also interesting is not only are we in Christ, but in a very real sense, Christ is in us. He would also say to the Corinthians, do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you? Theologians refer to this as union with Christ. This might be, as one person said, the most important doctrine that you never heard of. Union with Christ simply means that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. When you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God unites you to Jesus so that you are his and he is yours. And that bond and that union never goes away. It lasts throughout eternity. And so, friends, union with Christ is not just some doctrine to be understood intellectually, but a reality to be lived into experientially. Paul is writing to the saints in Christ Jesus. If he was writing a letter to us, he would say the same thing to all the saints at Mercy Held Church who are in Christ. I love what one commentator said about this doctrine of union with Christ. He says, in Christ, we are secure and have everything we need with, peace, with the peace of God as a garrison patrolling our hearts and as glorious riches laid open to meet our needs. In Christ, we become new people with new feelings, a new mind or way of looking at things, new encouragements or incentives to live as Christians should, and new abilities to bring those incentives to fruition. 
In Christ, we have a whole new way of looking at life, seeing his hand and his sovereign will in all things. To be in Christ, he says, is to possess full salvation. Everything necessary to our past, present, and eternal welfare has been secured for us by the action of God in Christ and is stored up in Christ for us to share and enjoy. So let me ask you this question. How would it change things if we began to see each other as saints in Christ Jesus? Is that the way that you normally think of your brothers and sisters as you walk into the doors of Mercy Hill Church? Oh, there's St. Jack, there's St. Zeb, there's St. Georgia, there's St. Lenin. I know you think very highly of yourselves, and I want to encourage that. But what if we started viewing each other as saints? How would that change things? How should that change the way that we are with one another? Well, Paul also tells them that he's, he's writing to, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. I want to take just a couple moments here to talk a moment about Philippi, because it's going to be really important for our understanding of exactly what's going on here. So I don't know how much detail you can see here of this map. To the lower right is Turkey, and you have Bulgaria above Greece, and in northern Greece is the city of Philippi. And here's an artist's rendition of what it might have looked like back in the day. What we need to know is that this ancient city of Philippi had the distinct honor given to it of being the first city in Europe to have a Christian church established by the Apostle Paul. Paul had been in Asia Minor, and now he goes over to Macedonia, to this ancient city. And as we saw in the reading of the scripture, he finds a woman named Lydia together with some of her friends and teaches them the gospel. Lydia has her heart open to receive the gospel of Jesus, and she becomes a believer, and her whole household is baptized. We see this young girl who is possessed and involved in fortune-telling, and she is freed from an evil spirit by the Apostle Paul. And then we see a Philippian jailer who almost kills himself, thinking that his, his prisoners have escaped. And Paul says, don't kill yourself, we're here. And just this conviction fell over him, no doubt because he heard Paul talking about Jesus. He says, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And so just in a matter of moments there, there's, there's the beginnings of a church in ancient Philippi. You can go today and see this city. It was um, named Philippi after King Philip II conquered the inhabitants of this, this new founded city there. He renamed it after himself. In 31 BC, just a few decades before Christ arrived on the scene, this is where Octavian, the son of Julius Caesar, defeated the general Mark Antony in a battle outside of Philippi, and he returned back to, um, to Rome to become the first Roman emperor. What we also need to know, and this is going to be very important in our study of this book of Philippians, was that Philippi was a Roman colony. What Octavian, who became Caesar Augustus, did was to declare Philippi in Greece to be basically little Rome. He, he relocated retired soldiers, Roman soldiers, to live there, and so they had all the rights and citizenry of Rome. They spoke like Romans. They dressed like Romans. The architecture of the city looked like Rome. And so what came with that, if you read the history books, is the worship of the emperor as well. And so 
you probably know this, but Octavian went by the title of the Son of God. He and the Roman Senate declared his father Julius to be divine. And so he became the Son of the Divine. He was also known as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Savior of the whole world. And to be a good Roman citizen living in this colony at Philippi required that you would also acknowledge the Roman emperors as divine, that you would declare that they are the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, that they are the saviors of the world. So I want you to imagine yourself living in this ancient city of Philippi to be a good neighbor. You would be expected to make your offerings to the Roman deities. You would be expected to declare the Roman emperors divine. You would participate in guilds of your profession that had Roman deities, and you pay honors to them if you want to do business. So imagine how difficult it might be if in this Roman colony, instead of saying Caesar is Lord, you're going around saying Jesus is Lord. Do you see how that might get you in a little bit of trouble with the Romans? Instead of saying that the emperor is the savior of the world, you're saying actually Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. Life would become very difficult. And so Paul is writing about 10 years later to these Christians, and just a, a few short years after that, the new Roman emperor, who was the emperor at the time that Paul is writing, Nero, is going to blame the Christians for a fire that historians believe he actually set himself. He's going to blame the Christians, and the persecution is going to get turned up big time. And so Paul is writing to these Christians, these saints, in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi. He's also writing to the overseers and deacons. This word overseer is just a reference to the elders of the church. The deacons are, are people that they put in place to help take care of the poor among them. And so he says in verse 2, this is the greeting, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Normally in ancient letters, you would simply say greetings. It's a word that sounds like the Greek word for Grace. But Paul changes a few letters and actually says grace to you. Not simply greetings, but grace to you. And this word grace, if you've been a follower of Jesus, you know that this is just basically a one-word summary of the gospel of Jesus. God's grace to us comes in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't have to earn salvation before him. We don't have to improve ourselves. We don't have to try to bribe God to accept us. He simply accepts us on the grace offered to us in Christ Jesus. And that's such a glorious thing. Whenever I think about this, I have this time in my mind where C.S. Lewis was at a conference on world religions, and he was off probably taking a, a pipe break or something like that, and he walks back into the room, and there's, his friends were in this just heated discussion about what, if anything, is unique about Christianity. And so as he walks in and sees them arguing with one another, he says in his typical British fashion, what is all this rumpus? And they tell him what they're debating. And he says, oh, that's easy. It's grace. You want to know what's unique about Christianity? It is grace. God accepts you on the basis of his favor and on his favor alone. And that comes wrapped up to us in the person of Jesus. As Paul will tell the Ephesians, in him, that is in Jesus, remember there's that phrase about union with Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of of his grace, which he lavished upon us. If you're a follower of Jesus, the grace you have experienced from God is not a reluctance, just uh, God is giving it despite what he really wants to do. 
It's nothing like that at all. It is grace upon grace. The way Paul says it here, he lavishes this upon his people. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, Paul wants you to know that same grace is ready to be had. Simply turn from your ways of living and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, believing on him as the, the Savior of the world, and that grace flows over you, just like it flows over those of us who have embraced Christ. And so he wants them to be able to experience this grace more and more. So he says to them, grace to you. But he also has this word, peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That word peace is a wonderful word. He, Paul will write to the Romans saying this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that is declared to be in the right with God, simply by faith in Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So grace comes and it sets us free. And the result of that is peace. And so when Paul says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he's wanting them to experience this more and more and more. In fact, later in the book of Philippians, he's going to say some of these, these amazing words. Some of y'all have this memorized. This is what Paul, uh, not Paul, Todd was referring to earlier. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And... As you do this, Paul says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Are you worried about how you're going to make ends meet? Bring that worry to the Lord and process that before him, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And as you do that, you will experience the peace of knowing that God cares for you. That he's working all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, out for his good, or for our good and his glory. So I don't know if you notice this. In those first two verses, Paul has already talked about Jesus three times. <laughs> you might say that the Apostle Paul was captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was. And he thinks the Philippians ought to be captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ, and they should. And if Paul were writing to us today, he would make the argument that you and I should be captivated by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. There's one commentator by the name of James Boyce who said this. He said, did you know the name of Christ or Jesus Christ occurs 17 times in the first chapter alone? Paul speaks of joy many times. He's going to speak of joy many times in this letter. This is significant, but it is greatly overshadowed by the number of times he mentions Jesus. Paul longs to know Jesus and longs to know him well. In fact, when we get to chapter 3 of this book, we're going to hear him say this, as he writes from prison, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul has been so captivated by the person of Jesus Christ that all he wants is to know him more. And the best he can describe it is if you put Jesus on one side of the, the scale and put everything else on the other. There's, there's no comparison. Jesus outweighs the worth of everything. And so my friends, we're going to unpack this book of Philippians over the next couple of months. 
And my invitation for you is to marinate in this book with us. We're subtitling, subtitling this series, Finding Joy Right Where You Are. Because Paul wants us to know that, that joy is available wherever we are, because Christ is available to us wherever we are. And he wants us to live into that reality more and more. The joy he's talking about that is yours in Christ Jesus is not dependent on your good circumstances or getting the raise or getting the perfect body or getting recognition. It transcends all of that, which can be taken away in a moment. It's not dependent on the good, the bad, or the ugly. It is a joy that transcends it all. And, and let me just hasten to say this. When you hear Paul speak of joy, of, of being blessed in Christ, of being glad in Christ, don't think of that as some kind of rosy, you know, putting a happy face on everything. I was talking to some people this last week. One of my favorite phrases of the Apostle Paul is found in the book of 2 Corinthians. He describes himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As we learn from that wonderful cartoon, Inside Out, you can have more than one emotion at one time, right? Paul talks about himself as being full of sorrow. But that's not the only thing he is full of. He is rejoicing at the same time. So when you hear Paul call you to joy in Christ, when you hear me explain the scriptures and call all of us to experience greater joy in Christ, we're not trying to, to wash over the bad stuff of life. I mean, some of y'all are going through it right now, I know. And it's been really difficult. Some of us are going to go through it in this future. It might be going great for you right now. But Paul wants us to know that there is a joy in Christ that can root us, that can cause us to endure, that transcends it all. <laughs> Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. So here's the question I want to leave you. What would it look like for you to master this letter to the Philippians? I'm hoping that it will master us as we walk through it. But what might it look like for you to master this book of Philippians? Have you ever thought about mastering a book of the Bible? This is a short one, four chapters long. This would be a perfect book to get your head and your heart around, to, to marinate in it so much that it, in a very real sense, becomes part of you. I know in anticipation of some of this uh, study this semester, some of you have told me that you're going to endeavor to try to memorize the book of Philippians. And that's a great task to go through. But maybe for some of you, that's a little bit too ambitious. Maybe you could, as we work through this book, find some key verses to commit to memory so that you can bring them to mind when you need encouragement, when you need to remember the joy that is available in Christ. Maybe for some of you, the, the way to marinate in this book is to join a life group. Or get together in groups of two or three and go over the reflection questions that we send out every week through email and, and just talk through this book together. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's doing what I'm doing as I go through this. It's just writing this letter out by hand, putting it in my own script so I can slow down and think about exactly what is being said. For some of you, it just might mean making the commitment to come back here next week as we take the next step and see what Paul says. What would it look like for you to master and be mastered by this book of Philippians. My friends, whatever it would take, let me assure you, Christ is worth it.